it used to be even by as as early as the beginning of this century as long ago as that prior to that the most well-known Bible verse by people that were unchurched and had no other knowledge of the scriptures. It used to be that the most well-known Bible verse that they could reference would be John 3.16 that spoke of God's love poured out in His Son in sacrificing Him on the cross so that we might not perish but might have everlasting life. But even as long ago as the beginning of this present century that we are in, that most well-known verse by people that did not have anything to do with God became Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. If someone were to quote a Bible verse verbatim, word for word, even though they knew nothing else of God's word, that would be the verse that they would be able to quote. And that, I believe, still stands today. We live in a cancel culture. A cancel culture is a judgmental culture. Even though what oftentimes a person is being canceled for is for what they would call being judgmental, canceling someone is very judgmental. Heard the person say recently, the world is so full of judgmental people, I can tell just by looking at them. (laughs) And what's funny about that is it takes some judgmentalness to look at someone and assume that they're judging you. Because you're assuming on their heart. You're assuming on what they're thinking. You're assuming on their pride. Here's what's interesting about Matthew 7. It begins with verse 1. Judge not, lest you be judged. But then it turns very quickly to what many people would consider to be judgmental. Jesus says... Don't take what is holy and give it to dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Later in the chapter, we're told to be discerning about false teachers. That they will be known by their fruits. As we'll see in the coming weeks, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. So certainly, we know from the context, from Jesus' continued teaching here, that what we are warned against in being told, judge not lest you be judged, we are not being warned against calling a spade a spade. We are not being warned against inspecting fruit of people and and acting on that. So in these messages, we're learning about Judging without condemning. Judging or discerning. Making a moral judgment about a situation, about a relationship, even about a person. Without condemning. 
We are required to make moral judgments every day. And we need to walk wisely with our resources, with what influences us, and certainly with what influences children. But what we must avoid being is condemning. Let's look at the verses this morning. So we read in the beginning of chapter 7 of Matthew, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take, out, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. First of all, let's, let's deal with how our culture, our present day culture, deals with this verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. I, I appreciated hearing Albert Moeller talk about an experience that he had. You, you remember the old uh, Fox show Hannity and Combs? This is uh, from some years ago. Uh, this was during the controversy of uh, President Bill Clinton and his activities in the Oval Office. And Albert Moeller was there on a panel of different theologians, and he was being asked, and they were being asked, what is your thoughts, what are, how do you feel like a Christian should respond to public um, sin, to public uh, outing of people's private behavior like this? And, and a liberal theologian responded, and said this, Jesus taught that Christians are never to make moral judgments of others. We are never to look at someone else's life and make a moral judgment, meaning what they're doing is right or what they are doing is wrong. Albert Muller describes himself as being perplexed, I think more apoplectic about this. Like he says, he just could not help but respond. You have got to be kidding me. You are telling me that it is never right for someone. You are saying that Jesus taught that it is never right to look at someone's behavior and say if it is wrong behavior. And the liberal theologian responded, that's exactly what I'm saying. He said, well, let me ask you this. Would you do that when hiring a babysitter? If you knew that someone was a registered sex offender, would you say, it's not right for me to decide if what they do have done is right or wrong? I should still hire them to watch my children. He said, these arguments sound perfectly fine until it's time to hire a babysitter. The first response that I believe God wants us to have is this. Don't be condemning. Be helpful. We're not called to be condemning. We're called to be helpful. In these first five verses is where we get this from. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, 
you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Notice the the end game here. Notice the the, uh, best scenario here is that one is able to help the other take the speck out. That one who is is planning to help the other take the speck out benefits from realizing in the situation, I've got to get this log out of my eye first. When, when we are told, judge not, the, the term that is used here is saying, do not condemn a person. It is not for us to play judge and jury. Don't rule out God's grace that might come to this person in the future. This forbids us from pronouncing a person as being unredeemable. As if to say, that person is on their way to hell and there is nothing that is going to stop them. Condemned. Like we have a gavel in our hand. We are not to be condemning of other people as if they are beyond God's help or beyond their grace. Condemn not, we are told. This kind of judgmentalism that we see in the brother of the the prodigal son, when he returns repentant, the brother is saying to his dad, why in the world would you receive back this son of yours that treated you this way? This is a type of judgmentalism that many would have had for the thief on the cross hanging next to Jesus. But God would have been thinking and saying, just you watch what me and my son are going to do with this man in his final moments. D.A. Carson says, Matthew 7, 1 forbids judgmentalism, not moral discernment. David K. Wood writes, when Jesus says don't judge in Matthew 7, 1, he is not forbidding all moral evaluations of all people in all situations, but rather forbidding a condemning attitude of other people as if to put yourself in God's position or to focus on the sins of others without first being concerned with your own. That's kind of a summary of these verses. We're told not to be judgmental because of the danger that there is to being condemning. The the hearers, as Jesus is teaching this, many especially of the religious Jews that were very prideful of their position as God's covenant people at that time, in many ways were dependent on that covenant, that, that national covenant relationship with God, even though it meant nothing personally to them in a transforming way. Jesus knew that in their judgmentalism there was such a danger because basically they could look at that other person and say, I am obviously righteous because God is comparing me to this person. And they would have had plenty of people in their community 
that would be saying, Barsabbas, you are the most righteous of all of us. Surely if anyone is going to be welcome into God's presence, it is you. God has, has been uh, treating us, God treating us as we, how we treat others is a theme of these chapters that we've seen. For instance, in Matthew 5, 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Matthew 6, 14 through 15, If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This also comes up in the Old Testament, Proverbs 19, 17. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he, being God, will repay him for his deed. But specifically understand, God, this does not un, undo the gospel. It does not undo God's saving grace in a person's life if they are judgmental towards other people. Obviously, you run this through the whole of the gospel in this warning, this danger of judgmentalism. Jesus is speaking to those that had a real danger of being self-righteous and that self-righteousness keeping them from being embracing of God's grace. You remember the ice bucket challenge some years ago? You know, where uh, one person would say, I'm doing this ice bucket challenge and... And I'm going to challenge somebody else to, to donate a certain amount of money, you know, to, uh, I think it was cancer awareness and things like that. What if they had their friend and their, they and their friend were going to both uh, uh, do the ice bucket challenge and they agreed upon that it was going to be an ice cream pail of ice water that, that uh, the friend was going to dump on them. And, and the friend sneakily pulled out a five-gallon bucket of ice water, and that's what they used to dump onto their friend for that ice bucket challenge. Well, when it turns around and it's time for the friend to dump water on the one who just dumped it on them, which bucket do you think they're going to use? It's very similar of the warning that we see here. The sadly polarized culture that we see these days amounts to the statement that sometimes we hear or at least people live by, even if unintentionally, you're dead to me. You're dead to me. Uh, of, of where someone might side with the wrong side or, or, or have what they think is the wrong opinion or, or do the wrong thing, say the wrong thing. And in our culture today, in this cancel culture, a judgmental culture that we live in, too often people are saying, oh, you believe that? Oh, you did that? Oh, you did that 10 years ago? You're dead to me. And the way that we're in danger of doing that as believers is saying, you know what? That person is dead to God's grace. There's no redemption. They're unredeemable. We can't respond in the same way, writing people off because of something that they think or how they vote or what they've done. If you're walking in relationship with God, he's pointing out what needs to change in your heart. And knowing your own heart should show you that God is not done with you yet. Don't look at what you see in someone's behavior and assume that God is done 
with them. We're told not to be judgmental also because of the lose-lose situation of prideful condemnation. That's the example that Jesus comes up with here. And and, uh, I think this kind of comes out of the carpenter background here of when you see the speck, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrites, he says. It's a painfully funny picture that Jesus paints here. Having ruled prideful condemnation that causes us to see ourselves as better than others. Having ruled that out, we're warned here that judgmentalism can encourage us to grow some pretty bad blind spots to our own sin. We do that, right? Where we say, you know, I'm not as bad as my neighbor. I'm not as bad as my uncle. You know, you think I'm bad at, at, at this with parenting kids? You should have known my dad. Right? I imagine the scenario in which two guys are working in a wood shop, cutting a piece of wood, and something goes wrong, and, and the wood goes flying, and one guy ends up with a speck in his eye, and he's like, oh, man, I got wood in my eye. And the other guy's sitting there going, I got the rest of the log in my eye. I got the, the, the half a two-by-four sticking out of my eye. And the guy with the two-by-four is like saying, here, come here, let me take care of that for you. No, I'm good. I don't have a problem. Nothing here. Nothing to see. It's ridiculous for the one with the board in his eye to think he's in a better situation to help the other. There's this, this uh, alleged story, as I read about it, and that I, you know, I don't know what that means that it was an alleged story, but of, of Charles Spurgeon inviting D.L. Moody to speak in an event that Charles Spurgeon had hosted. And if you've ever seen pictures of these guys, they both were tipping the scales. You know, I mean, they, they, they had some pretty good bellies on them, but D.L. Moody had a bigger one. And, and Moody accepted and preached the entire time on the evils of tobacco and why the Lord doesn't want Christians to smoke. Of course, we didn't have little black boxes on the side of the packages and things like that, but, but Spurgeon was an avid cigar smoker. And he was surprised at what seemed to be a cheap shot leveled by Moody using the pulpit to condemn a fellow minister for violating an issue of personal conscience, specifically Moody's conscience. And when Moody finished preaching, Spurgeon walked up to the podium and said, Mr. Moody, I'll put down my cigars when you put down your fork. It is prideful hypocrisy for us to be blinded to our own sin. And me being blinded to my sin, I'm in no shape to be, an accurate, in, to be accurate in my evaluation of other people's lives. So does that mean I don't help other people? No, it means I ask the Lord to work on me and show me my blind spots so that I can help others. It means being humble about where I struggle. Open so that I can be a help to others. How, does, how often does it happen that our flesh rises up when we're trying to exhort someone? And we want to say, I can't believe you just said that. 
Anybody with half a brain doesn't think that. How in the world could you come to that conclusion? We have to reject our fleshly impulses and be ready to admit our faults if we're to have constructive conversations. Not to sit there going, well, of course I responded that way. How would you? Parents, I I love uh, Paul Tripp's book, Age of Opportunity, written to help parents of teenagers. And it could be good for grandparents of teenagers to see the teen years as a time for growth for all parties involved. Growth not just for the teenager, but growth for the parents. You know, they say parenting is our last opportunity to grow up. But Paul Tripp says in his book, Age of Opportunity, the teen years expose our self-righteousness, our impatience, our unforgiving spirit, our lack of servant love, the weakness of our faith, and our craving for comfort and ease. So being judgmental, condemn, judgmentally condemning causes both parties to miss the opportunity to see their sin and grow from the situation. Instead, we can take advantage of the win-win situation of humble helpfulness. That's that's the ideal that Jesus goes to in verse 5. You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We've talked before about how The term hypocrite was the name for actors on a stage. And we take that, the word hypocrite, from that because they would change a mask to a different mask each time that they were changing character. And, And it's like Jesus saying, hey, you're just wearing a mask. If you're sitting there acting like you don't have any sin in your life because... It's like, well, it's not about me right now. It's about them. This isn't about me. This is about you. That's not how it works. That's not helpful. Being a hypocrite in a situation means refusing to admit that we too have sin that needs to be dealt with. And notice the hope is that both people might find the remedy in the situation. Both the confrontor and the confrontee can be honest about their sin. You know, maybe that looks like saying, hey, you know what? I struggle with things too. I could list them off to you. I've got blind spots. I have a sinful heart. I, I, can, I, can, I can be some help of you here, with, to you here, because I deal with sin myself. I deal with a sin nature just like you're dealing with. Can we work on this together? You know, what do they say in, in that uh, instructions before you take off? Don't freak out. There might be some oxygen masks that drop out of the ceiling. That wouldn't be scary. But parents, what do they say? Put yours on first before you help your child with theirs. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, hey, be perfect before you can confront someone. He's not saying, get all of your house in order before you can be exhorting. 
He's saying, be aware that you require God's grace. Be honest about the fact that you require God's grace. And then you can help other people experience God's grace. That's what's being talked about here. Many of you have been small group uh, facilitators or, or teachers. And I've heard many of you say, I learned so much from the fact that I've got to facilitate this material. I've got to lead the discussion. I grow myself more than probably anybody else. This is why I say if you compliment me on a sermon, I say, I have got the best seat in the house. It's not just because I get to look at all you pretty people. It's because I get to study it. I get to grow in it. I am only about three days ahead of you guys in what you learn here. That's honesty. It's a very different thing for anyone, a small group leader or a preacher or anybody, to exhort others like God has run out of things in my life to work on. And it's much better to teach with an honest excitement of something that you learn through preparing. I was so blessed as we talk about, you know, potential shepherds of the future at harvest. To hear one of our shepherds to explain, please let men know that when it comes to the qualifications for being a shepherd, none of us feel like we have a corner on the market. So don't be condemning. Be helpful. Anyone who writes others off as good for nothing and certain for hell needs to be concerned about the condition of their heart. Helping someone else to deal with their sin is a good thing. But if pride and self-confidence and self-righteousness is blinding us, we are not going to be helpful to anyone. We must deal with our own sinful hearts if we are to help others do the same. Jesus was known for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners was basically another term for prostitutes, for like the lowest of the low. And tax collectors were, were thought to be traitors to their people because they were working for Rome to collect taxes from their Jewish brothers and sisters. And Jesus would hang out with these people. And he obviously wasn't hanging out with these people and helping them revel in their sin. He was hanging out with them trying to, to, in the attempt to share his gospel of his kingdom with them. These people that were most despised in the Jewish communities... And Jesus was ridiculed for spending time with these people. He wasn't blowing off their sin. When they would come to repentance, Jesus would tell them, go and sin no more. It was, it was after Zacchaeus, the tax collector, said, Lord, if I have stolen from anyone, I will repay them four times. That Jesus said, salvation has come to this house this day. Not because of the works that Zacchaeus was proposing to do, but because the change that God's grace had done on his heart. So we will see in Matthew 18, you know, a few years from now when we get there, that in the process of church correction that Jesus says, 
when he says, if, a, if you see a brother caught in sin, or, or that's kind of the Galatians 6 word for it, but, but go to him and, and, and point it out to him. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And if he refuses to listen to you, and this is intended to be out of love, out of concern for that brother, go and take another brother and, and go to him with them. And it's basically to say, hey, you might think that this is just my perspective, but our fellow brother here is seeing this too. We're both concerned for you. And it goes on to say, and if he refuses to listen to you, then to tell it to the church. And that doesn't mean gossip about it. That doesn't even mean, I think, broadcast about it. I think that takes it to the level of the elders of the church. And, it, and it, he goes on to say, and if they refuse even to listen to the church, treat them as a tax collector and sinner. Does that mean you ostracize them? Does that mean you kick them out? How did Jesus treat tax collectors and sinners? He leaned into them. He shared the gospel with them. The whole purpose of, in Matthew 18, correction, at that point, is basically to say to the person, we all see this, and apparently you are not seeing this. Our concern for you is that the Holy Spirit is probably not indwelling you. Our concern for you is that you have not experienced the saving grace of God. And we are concerned for you. And we don't want you to be in hell. So out of love, we're switching from treating you as a brother to treating you as someone who needs to be loved into the kingdom. That is very different than being judgmental and saying, well, that person just is beyond God's grace then. Galatians 6.1 puts it, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And here's the log that we got to watch out for in the eye. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Tempted with what? Well, primarily I think it's being judgmental. Losing a hope that God can change this person. In his grace. So is Jesus telling us that it's safest to just avoid making any moral judgments? No. That, that, this would contradict what he tells us in verse 15 and 16. As I've already shared with you. Beware those false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. But inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. He's saying, make some moral judgments on who it is that you should listen to and who it is that you shouldn't. Be fruit inspectors. Many divide this between the idea that to be judgmental is to think that we can see someone's heart. And really what we're seeing is we're seeing our evaluation of them going through the filter of our sinful heart. I take this to mean more in terms of the person is beyond redemption. But it's a very different thing to look at someone's behavior and say, this is how this behavior lines up to how God tells us that we should be living. This is a person that I should listen to or not. This is a person that I should let speak into my kids' lives, my grandkids' lives, or not. The fact is that we cannot know a person's heart and we don't know God's plan for them. 
but we can see their behavior. We can see the fruit. So the closer context of Jesus' warning here about being judgmental or condemning, he says something that seems rather judgmental, right? Do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. So while we're not to be condemning, we are still essentially told, don't waste what's valuable. Be discerning. Don't waste what's valuable. Be discerning. It's very likely what he's, when he talks about what is holy, he's talking about what was offered to the Lord, either the showbread there in the tabernacle and in the temple, or, or meat that had been laid up on the altar. You know, there were street dogs of that day, unclean animals that, that would, would, were menaces, that basically if you even tried to, to uh, pet them, they would just growl and bark at you. The picture there is, oh, you know, here's a street dog. I'm just going to take this offering off of the altar that's been offered up to the Lord and throw it on the ground and see if they like it. Or, or, or pigs, which we know were unclean to the Jewish people. And I think specifically this is like wild pigs that were dangerous, that you don't want to get near to. They have no sense of understanding the value of pearls. They're just going to trample them underfoot. These verses are not saying, okay, listen, they are not saying that some people are worth nothing more than street dogs or pigs. That is not what this is saying. It is highlighting the lunacy of giving what has great value to God or to people. What is offered is holy. Or pearls to those that care nothing about it. Especially if they have shown they care nothing about it. I think what falls into this is enabling. Providing a person with the resources that they need so that they, continue, so that they can continue down a path that is destructive to them. Those resources are like something that is valuable, something that is important, and it's just getting trampled by them. And in, in, at, even worse, it's enabling them to continue to live in a destructive way. Or it's appeasement, call, trying to calm someone's anger by giving in to their demands. You might recall Winston Churchill speaking of Nazi Germany when it was rising to power and, and taking over, uh, <clears throat> threatening to take over neighboring nations, Winston Churchill described appeasement as feeding the crocodile, hoping that it will eat you last. I believe that's what's being talked about here. You know, I've, I've, I've enjoyed these shows, uh, Traitors. And, and one of them is Traders uh, UK. And in one of the, uh, it's, a, it's, you know, it's a reality TV show. And, and in one of the challenges that they were doing, they had some like wild pigs pinned up. And I think it was just kind of like nearby to what they were doing. I think it was kind of just add to the, to the intensity of the situation. And, and one, of the, one of the contestants said, oh, I saw the pigs and I thought, oh, how cute. I, I wanted to go and pet them. And, and then she just kind of throws in there, but then I found out later they would have killed me. That's the situation here. 
While we shouldn't write off a person as unredeemable, there is a place for making a moral judgment on a person's behavior. There's a place for making a moral judgment on the way that the person has treated what we have given to them, which is valuable to God. We are encouraged to discern whether a person is receptive to the gospel. We aren't expected to allow others to manipulate us or to, for us to, to get us to enable them in their sin simply in the hopes that, they might be, that, that we might be able to throw some truth at them in the process. We should not be putting our reputation in danger, for, you know, like as a pastor or, or something like that. Maybe because, well, if I just am in that compromising situation that looks bad with this, with this woman that doesn't have a good reputation, I might be able to share the gospel with her. That would be a situation of like, no, you stay away from it. We shouldn't offer up our children to appease relatives. Because, well, they're family. They want to have them over for a sleepover. Nothing good goes on in that house. But, you know, they're family. Folks, I think that's offering up a pearl to someone that is not going to appreciate it. In the hopes that maybe something good will happen of it. Don't do it. Many in our culture have lost all sense of of discernment regarding sin. The avoidance of being judgmental has resulted in a lack, a total lack of moral judgment. And much has been turned upside down to the point that people are applauded for their outward rebellion against God's created order of what marriage is to be about, of what sexuality is to be about, of what gender is to be about. And to say, well, you know, they love each other. Love is a holy word. God is love. We're not going to offer up our definition, God's definition of love, for it to get trampled. In the hopes that maybe it will appease someone. Many of our culture have lost all sense of discernment regarding what is of greatest value, our children. Probably the most blatant examples of this is the two ideas colliding and what children are exposed to today. Sitting your kids or your grandkids in front of the TV and thinking, well, what could be wrong with the Disney Channel? Is casting pearls before pigs. I think probably the, the, the example that we hear of the most and we scratch our heads the most about is Drag Queen Story Hour. Understand here that what is holy is being given. I'm not calling these people dogs, okay? But it's a situation of taking what is holy, what is supposed to be innocent, and trying to make a culture happy with it. It seems like our culture has read, this is the progressive culture, this isn't all of our culture, but it seems like our progressive culture has read the emperor's new clothes and thought if we can just brainwash that kid, 
then he won't pipe up and say, the emperor's naked. What are we doing here? What I think is most applicable here is our temptation, our temptation to appease people or to enable them and to lose all sense of what is appropriate in what we offer to do that. The book of Ephesians comes to a theological climax, and I want to close this message with this. Ephesians 3, 20-21 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is a God of amazingly awesome power. By his awesome power, he does things that are well beyond anything that we can describe or even imagine. Think of what in your life you think is the most impossible to accomplish. God is capable of doing more. Think of the person that you're tempted to think is unredeemable. Think of what what would say the most that is most needed in their life. What you would say is the most needed in your life but seems unrealistic and out of reach. God is able to do it. That's what we are promised here. And God can do it without you giving them a blank check in your relationship with them. That might even be getting in the way. Let's bow our heads.